Section 39 of Hand and Ring by Anna Catherine Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 35 Pro and Con Part 2 Mr. Ferris, who, during this lengthy and exhaustive harangue, had sat with brooding countenance and an anxious mien, roused himself as the other ceased and glanced with a smile at Hickory. Well, said he, that's good reasoning, but now let us hear how you will go to work to demolish it. The cleared brow, the playful tone of the district attorney, showed the relieved state of his mind. Byrd's arguments had evidently convinced him of the innocence of Imogene Dare. Hickory, seeing it, shook his head with a gloomy air. Sir, said he, I can't demolish it. If I could tell why Mansell fled from Widow Clemens' house at five minutes to twelve, I might be able to do so. But that fact stumps me. It is an act consistent with guilt. It may be consistent with innocence. But, as we don't know all the facts, we can't say so. But this I do know, that my convictions with regard to that man have undergone a change. I now as firmly believe in his innocence as I once did in his guilt. What has produced the change? asked Mr. Ferris. Well, said Hickory, it all lies in this. From the day I heard Miss Dare accuse him so confidently in the hut, I believed him guilty. From the moment he withdrew his defense, I believed him innocent. Mr. Ferris and Mr. Byrd looked at him astonished. He at once brought down his fist in vigorous assertion on the table. I tell you, said he, that Craig Mansell is innocent. The truth is, he believes Miss Dare guilty, so he stands his trial, hoping to save her. And be hung for her crime? asked Mr. Ferris. No, he thinks his innocence will save him, in spite of the evidence on which we got him indicted. But the district attorney protested at this. That can't be, said he. Mansell has withdrawn the only defense he had. On the contrary, asserted Hickory, that very thing only proves my theory true. He is still determined to save Miss Dare by everything short of a confession of his own guilt. He won't lie. That man is innocent. And Miss Dare is guilty, said Byrd. Shall I make it clear to you in the way it has become clear to Mr. Mansell? As Byrd only answered by a toss of his head, Hickory put his elbows on the table, and checking off every sentence with the forefinger of his right hand, which he pointed at Mr. Ferris's shirt stud, as if to instill from its point conviction into that gentleman's bosom, he proceeded with the utmost composure as follows. To commence, then, with the scene in the woods. He meets her. She is as angry at his aunt as he is. What does she do? She strikes the tree with her hand, tells him to wait till tomorrow, since a night has been known to change the whole current of a person's affairs. Now tell me, what does that mean? Murder? If so, she was the one to originate it. He can't forget that. It has stamped itself upon Mansell's memory, and when... After the assassination of Mrs. Clements, he recalls those words. He is convinced that she has slain Mrs. Clements to help him. But, Mr. Hickory objected, Mr. Ferris, this assumes that Mr. Mansell is innocent 
whereas we have exceedingly cogent proof that he is the guilty party. There is a circumstance of his leaving Widow Clement's house at five minutes to twelve. To which Hickory, with a twinkle in his eye, replied, I won't discuss that. It hasn't been proved, you know. Miss Dare told you she saw him do this, but she wouldn't swear to it. Nothing is to be taken for granted against my man. Then you think Miss Dare spoke falsely? I don't say that. I believe that whatever he did could be explained if we knew as much about it as he does. But I am not called upon to explain anything which has not appeared in evidence against him. Well, then, we'll take the evidence. There is his ring found on the scene of the murder. Exactly, rejoined Hickory, dropped there, as he must suppose by Miss Dare, because he didn't know she had secretly restored it to his pocket. Mr. Ferris smiled. You don't see the force of the evidence, said he. As she had restored it to his pocket, he must have been the one to drop it there. I am willing to admit he dropped it there, not that he killed Mrs. Clements. I am now speaking of his suspicions as to the assassin. When the betrothal ring was found there, he suspects Miss Dare of the crime, and nothing has occurred to change his suspicions. But, said the district attorney, how does your client, Mr. Mansell, get over this difficulty that Miss Dare, who has committed a murder, to put $5,000 in his pocket, immediately afterward turns round and accuses him of the crime, nay more, furnishes evidence against him. You can't expect the same consistency from a woman as from a man. They can nerve themselves up one moment to any deed of desperation, and take every pains the next to conceal it by a lie. Men will do the same. Then why not Mansell? I'm showing you why I know that Mansell believes Miss Dare guilty of a murder. To continue, then, what does he do when he hears that his aunt has been murdered? He scratches out the face of Miss Dare in a photograph. He ties up her letters with a black ribbon as if she were dead and gone to him. Then the scene in the Syracuse Depot. The rule of three works both ways, Mr. Bird. And if she left her home to solve her doubts, what shall be said of him? The recoil, too, was it less on his part than hers? And, if she had cause to gather guilt from his manner, had he not as much cause to gather it from hers? If his mind was full of suspicion, when he met her, it became conviction before he left. And bearing that fact in your mind, watch how he henceforth conducted himself. He does not come to Sibley. The woman he fears to encounter is there. He hears of Mr. Hildreth's arrest, reads of the discoveries which led to it, and keeps silent. So would any other man have done in his place, at least, till he saw whether this arrest was likely to end in trial. But he cannot forget he had been in Sibley on the fatal day, or that there may be someone who saw his interview with Miss Dare. When Bird comes to him, therefore, and tells him he is wanted in Sibley, his first question is, am I wanted as a witness? And even you have acknowledged, Mr. Ferris, that he seemed surprised to find himself accused of the crime. But accused, he takes his course and keeps to it. Brought to trial, 
He remembers the curious way in which he crossed the river, and thus cut short the road to the station, and seeing in it great opportunities for a successful defense, chooses Mr. Orcutt for his counsel, and trusts the secret to him. The trial goes on. Acquittal seems certain, when suddenly she is recalled to the stand, and he hears words which make him think she is going to betray him by some falsehood when instead of following the lead of the prosecution, she launches into a personal confession. What does he do? Why rise and hold up his hand in a command for her to stop? But she does not heed, and the rest follows as a matter of course. The life she throws away he will not accept. He is innocent, but his defense is false. He says so, and leaves the jury to decide on the verdict. There can be no doubt Hickory finally concluded that some of these circumstances are consistent only with his belief that Miss Dare is a murderess, such, for instance, as his scratching out her face in the picture. Others favor the theory in a less degree, but this is what I want to impress upon both your minds, he declared. Turning first to Mr. Ferris and then to Mr. Byrd, if any fact, no matter how slight, leads us to the conviction that Craig Mansell, at any time after the murder, entertained the belief that Miss Dare committed it, his innocence follows as a matter of course, for the guilty could never entertain a belief in the guilt of any other person. Yes, said Mr. Ferris, I admit that, but we have got to see into Mr. Mansell's mind before we can tell what his belief really was. No, was Hickory's reply, let us look at his actions. I say that, that the defaced picture is conclusive. One day he loves that woman and wants her to marry him. The next, he defaces her picture. Why? She has not offended him. Not a word, not a line, passes between them to cause him to commit this act. But he does hear of his aunt's murder, and he does recall her sinister promise. Wait, there is no telling what a day will bring forth. I say that no other cause for his act is shown except his conviction that she is a murderess. But, persisted Mr. Ferris, his leaving the house, as he acknowledges, he did by this unfrequented and circuitous road. I have said before that I cannot explain his presence there or his flight. All I am now called upon to show is some fact inconsistent with anything except the belief in this young woman's guilt. I claim I have shown it, and, as you admit, Mr. Ferris, if I show that, he is innocent. Yes, said Byrd, speaking for the first time, but we have heard of people manufacturing evidence in their own behalf. Come, Byrd, replied Hickory, you don't seriously mean to attack my position with that suggestion. How could a man dream of manufacturing evidence of such a character? A murderer manufactures evidence to throw suspicion on other people. No fool could suppose that scratching out the face of a girl in a photograph and locking it up in his own desk would tend to bring her to the scaffold or to save him from it. And yet, rejoined Byrd, that very act acquits him in your eyes. All that is necessary is to give him credit for being smart enough to foresee that it would have such a tendency in the eyes of any person who discovered the picture. 
Then, said Hickory, he would also have to foresee that she would accuse herself of murder when he was on trial for it, and that he would thereupon withdraw his defense. Bird, you are foreseeing too much. My friend Menzel possesses no such power of looking into the future as that. Your friend Mansell, repeated Mr. Ferris with a smile, if you were on his jury, I suppose your bias in his favor would lead you to acquit him of this crime? I should declare him not guilty and stick to it if I had to be locked up for a year. Mr. Ferris sank into an attitude of profound thought. Horace Byrd, impressed by this, looked at him anxiously. Have your convictions been shaken by Hickory's ingenious theory? he ventured to inquire at last. Mr. Ferris abstractly replied, This is no time for me to state my convictions. It is enough that you comprehend my perplexity. And relapsing into his former condition, he remained for a moment wrapped in silence. Then he said, Bird, how comes it that the humpback who excited so much attention on the day of the murder was never found? Bird astonished, surveyed the district attorney with a doubtful look that gradually changed into one of quiet satisfaction as he realized the significance of these recurrence to old theories and suspicions. His answer, however, was slightly embarrassed in tone, though frank enough to remind one of Hickory's blunt-spoken admissions. Well, said he, I suppose the main reason is that I made no attempt to find him. Do you think that you were wise in that, Mr. Byrd? inquired Mr. Ferris, with some severity. Horace laughed. I can find him for you today if you want him, he declared. You can? You know him, then? Very well, Mr. Ferris, he courteously remarked. I perhaps should have explained to you at the time that I recognized this person and knew him to be an honest man. But habits of secrecy in our profession are so fostered by the lives we lead that we sometimes hold our tongue when it would be better for us to speak. The humpback who talked with us on the courthouse steps that morning Mrs. Clemens was murdered was not what he seemed, sir. He was a detective, a detective in disguise, a man with whom I never presumed to meddle. In other words, our famous Mr. Grice. Grice, that man, exclaimed Mr. Ferris, astounded. Yes, sir, he was in disguise probably for some purpose of his own. But I knew his eye. Grice's eye isn't to be mistaken by anyone who has much to do with him. And that famous detective was actually on the spot of the time this murder was discovered, and you let him go without warning me of his presence? Sir, returned Mr. Byrd, neither you nor I nor anyone at that time could foresee what a serious and complicated case this was going to be. Besides, he did not linger in this vicinity, but took the cars only a few minutes after he parted from us. I did not think he wanted to be dragged into this affair unless it was necessary. He had important matters of his own to look after. However, if suspicion had continued to follow him, I should have notified him of the fact and let him speak for himself. But it vanished so quickly at the light of other developments I just let the matter drop. The impatient frown with which Mr. Ferris received this acknowledgment showed he was not pleased. I think you made a mistake, said he. 
then after a minute's thought added, You have seen Grice since? Yes, sir, several times. He has acknowledged himself to have been the humpback? Yes, sir. You must have had some conversation with him then about this murder. He was too nearly concerned in it not to take some interest in the affair. Yes, sir. Grice takes an interest in all murder cases. Well, then, what did he have to say about this one? He gave an opinion, I suppose. No, sir. Grice never gives an opinion without study, and we detectives have no time to study up an affair not of our own. If you want to know what Grice thinks about a crime, you have got to put the case into his hands. Mr. Ferris paused and seemed to ruminate. Seeing this, Mr. Bird flushed and cast a side glance at Hickory, who returned him an expressive shrug. Mr. Ferris ventured the former, if you wish to consult with Mr. Grice on this matter, do not hesitate because of us. Both Hickory and myself acknowledge we are more or less baffled by this case, and Grice's judgment is a good thing to have in a perplexity. You think so? queried the district attorney. I do, said Berg. Mr. Ferris glanced at Hickory. Oh, have the old man if you want him, was that detective's blunt reply. I have nothing to say against you getting all the light you can on this affair. Very good, returned Mr. Ferris. You may give me his address before you go. His address for tonight is Utica, observed Bird. He could be here before morning if you wanted him. I am in no such hurry as that, returned Mr. Ferris, and he sank again into thought. The detectives took advantage of his abstraction to utter a few private condolences in each other's ears. So it seems we are to be laid on the shelf, whispered Hickory. Yes, for which let us be thankful, answered Bird. Why, are you getting tired of the affair? Yes. A humorous twinkle shone for a minute in Hickory's eye. Pooh, he said, it's just getting interesting. Opinions differ, quoth Bird. Not much, retorted Hickory. Something in the way he said this made Bird look at him more intently. He instantly changed his tone. Old fellow, said he, you don't believe Miss Dare committed this crime any more than I do. A sly twinkle answered him from the detective's half-shut eye. All that talk of having seen through your disguise in the hut is just nonsense on your part to cover up your real notion about it. What is that notion, Hickory? Come out with it. Let us understand each other thoroughly at last. Do I understand you? You shall, when you tell me just what your convictions are in this matter. Well then, replied Hickory, with a short glance at Mr. Ferris, I believe, it's hard as pulling teeth to own it, that neither of them did it, that she thought him guilty and he thought her so, but that in reality the crime lies at the door of some third party totally disconnected with either of them. Such as Governor Hildreth, whispered Bird. Such as Governor Hildreth, drawled Hickory. The two detectives eyed each other, smiled, and turned with relieved countenances toward the district attorney. He was looking at them with great earnestness. That is your joint opinion, he remarked. It's mine, cried Hickory, bringing his fist down on the table with a vim that made every individual article on it jump. It is, and it is not mine, acquiesced Bird, 
as the eye of Mr. Ferris turned in his direction. Mr. Mansell may be innocent. Indeed, after hearing Hickory's explanation of his conduct, I am ready to believe he is. But to say that Governor Hildreth is guilty comes hard to me, after the long struggle I have maintained in favor of his innocence. Yet, what other conclusion remains after an impartial view of the subject? None. Then why should I shrink from acknowledging I was at fault, or hesitate to admit a defeat, where so many causes combined to mislead me? Which means you agree with Hickory, ventured the district attorney? Mr. Byrd slowly bowed. Mr. Ferris continued for a moment, looking alternately from one to the other. Then he observed, When two such men unite in an opinion, it is at least worthy of consideration. And rising, he took on an aspect of sudden determination. Whatever may be the truth in regard to this matter, said he, one duty is clear. Miss Dare, as you inform me, has been, with but little idea of the consequence, I am sure, allowed to remain under the impression that the interview she held in the hut was with her lover. As her belief in the prisoner's guilt, doubtless, rests upon the admissions which were at that time made in her hearing, it is palpable that a grave injustice has been done both to her and to him by leaving this mistake of hers uncorrected. I therefore consider it due to Miss Dare, as well as to the prisoner, to undeceive her on this score before another hour has passed over our heads. I must therefore request you, Mr. Byrd, to bring the lady here. You will find her still in the courthouse, I think, as she requested leave to remain in the room below till the crowd has left the streets. Mr. Byrd, who in the new light which had been thrown on the affair by his own and Hickory's suppositions, could not but see the justice of this, rose with alacrity to obey. I will bring her, if she is in the building, he declared, hurriedly leaving the room. And if she is not, Mr. Ferris remarked, with a glance at the consciously rebuked Hickory, we shall have to follow her to her home, that is all. I am determined to see this woman's mind cleared of all misapprehensions before I take another step in the way of my duty. End of chapter 35, part 2